Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Noon and welcome along to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Doric, suppliers of window and door hardware to homes and apartments across Australia, New Zealand and Asia. Now we've talked to plenty of legendary racers already on the V8 Sleuth podcast, but in this episode we're chatting to a journalist who was right there in the thick of the action, telling the story behind the story of moments that have gone down in Australian racing history. He's the guy who gave Russell Ingle the nickname, The Enforcer. He's a friend of Arthur Moffat's and a handy steerer in his own right too. Our guest on this podcast is Paul Gover. Now, a few highlights from our chat ahead. The time that he suddenly found himself as Peter Brock's co-driver at Bathurst. The story that could have stopped Craig Lowndes from winning his first Bathurst 1000 in 1996. And his take on the current crop of supercar stars. PG's got a million stories from his time in and around the sport, and it's on this podcast where we really just scratch the surface. So here we go. Buckle up, it's time to start. Paul Gover on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Doric. Paul Gover, I don't know where to start. Where Should we start at the start? How, oh. how do you end up a motor-obsessed guy who has written about the sport, the automotive industry for so long, and done it from behind the wheel as well. Where did this craziness all begin? It began because my dad was such a rotten driver. Really? And I promised myself I would never drive as badly as he did. And so I became obsessed with driving and then motorsport because I grew up at Campbelltown, which was just over the hill, literally over the hill from Oran Park. Um, during the middle of the week, we could hear the noise from Oran Park. So we used to ride our bicycles out there and look at cars driving around. Much better than school. Oh, absolutely. Although we had to go to school, so it was usually after school. But I can remember riding out there and seeing Ian Gagan's Mustang going around and uh, Frank Gardner, the first rollout of the Chev Corvair when it didn't have any cigarette sponsorship on it. You know, all sorts of amazing memories. Where does the uh, love of cars, motoring, motor racing turn into, hmm, actually writing, this could be a job, this could be a career. How did that whole pathway oh i thought you were going to go off. with how to become an obsession well it's the same thing isn't it really? <laughs> absolutely well i don't really have a hobby i go to car race meetings same. or rallies or whatever um i started as a as a journalist you won't believe this that i went to the military college for a brief period what how brief is brief uh less than six months but my best mate was there as well mark who's known around the, the v8 pits as, as the minder <laughs> very dangerous man but uh yeah i went there and i i realized green wasn't my color and being honest, I wasn't very good at following orders. Well, nothing's changed. Not really. No. <laughs> Red, red's now my colour and I still don't follow orders. So I did that uh, and then I went and worked for a while. I was going to be a lawyer uh, and law is unbelievably boring when you're studying it. it. looks fantastic on TV. It's a bit like motor racing. looks fantastic on the TV, but the deeper you dig, the worse it gets. Um, and then the local paper had a position up. And where's the local? Are you uh, still in around? Town, still yeah, around in Campbelltown, yeah. yeah. So it's the local paper. And what era are we talking here? Uh, we're talking in the 70s, mid-70s. Yeah. And uh, I applied, 92 people applied, and you'll be pleased to know I finished P2. Who was P1? A female. Oh. And back in the day, instead of hiring the female, they actually had a boy-girl-girl-girl policy. So the previous person had been a female. So, so they it was hired time to get me. a boy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. How about that? And what was your first beat? What was the first? What was your first go-to news beat of uh, the period? I used to do. So you, are you in sport? Are you in general reporting? Oh, everywhere. You, you know, anything, this is like this, this is like a paper mate. You know, if somebody broke wind, that was the story. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like the the boss used to say to me, "Go up the main street and get me three stories, and don't come back till you got them." So I did that, 
And I, I, I did the police beat, which was fantastic. Learned that most criminals are not particularly smart. Great story. Turned up one day. There'd been a break and enter. These people came home. All of their valuables were in two suitcases inside the front door because the blokes knew how to break in, but they couldn't get out with the suitcases. <laughs> so, you know, so you learned that. Um, and then I had a mate who was a police motorcyclist. He taught me to ride motorbikes at the time. And then I got into rallying fairly young. Uh, I, I was probably 17, 16 or 17 when I first went to rally as a, as a control official with my cousin. And I got really hooked on rallying because it was visceral and it, you could see it and, you know, blokes firing through the bush in the middle of the night. And, and the people were really approachable. You know, you could walk up to a rally guy to service thing. And so that's where I got started. And being as how I was a journalist and didn't know much, I could go rallying. Are you able to, at this period of being a journalist, weave cars into your world or are you trying to find a way I was to trying to find a way yeah, yeah. It, I was trying to find a way so I used to get sent over so anybody who knows you won't know all you people who are listening but the geography around that area is Campbelltown is near Camden and the and Oran Park's out in that that area so I'd get sent on a job over to Camden always went via Oran Park <laughs> um, and so I'd drop in and see my mate Horsley known throughout the motoring world as H Alan Horsley the best motorsport promoter I've ever come across by a long, long, long way, um, even though Tony Cochran will tell you that he is. <laughs> um, so did that sort of stuff and then managed to talk to the boss about, because he knew I was obsessed, and he said, you know, if we could get some advertising, you can do some road tests. So I did some road tests on cars as memorable as a Rambler Hornet. <laughs> which was an unmitigated piece of merd. Um, you can swear on this podcast. <laughs> oh, it's okay. okay. Yeah, no, it was really rubbishy shit. But, you know, it got me started and then I left Campbelltown and went to Canberra uh, to a newspaper called the Canberra Times, which was a grown-up adult sort of newspaper. Um, managed to convince them along the same way that motor- motoring could actually make money. Um, so uh, we started the first motoring lift out in any daily newspaper in Australia. It built really fast. And because rallying was big down there and Greg Carr was a mate of mine, did lots of rallying and motorsport and stuff, promised myself I would never go to Bathurst until I was a full-time motoring journalist. 1984, big banger. I'd written about it before, but went up there representing the Canberra Times, had a press pass, was able to stand around with the big boys and pretend like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> I reckon you probably pretended well. Pretended oh, well, well, I had some good leaders, you know. We had a guy called David Robertson, who know, nobody will remember, but he was on the Sydney Morning Herald. He was great mates with Moffat, so he never went. He just rang up Moffat. And Alan would tell him what had happened. He'd write this very, very Alan Moffat-centric. So the bloke from the Daily Telegraph, Wayne Webster, who's still around, uh, he was a Brock acolyte. In fact, many people have said that he looked like Brock when they were younger. And in fact, he used to sleep at Webster's house. Brock would come up and sleep at Webster's house when he came to Sydney. So he was the Brock man. Famously came up with a line at Amaru. So Brock's in the whatever it was, the Amaru 300 or something. He's come into the pits and crashed, crashed. into the wall yeah, in front the, of the press room. The yeah. Celestic 300 in a Commodore yeah. 84. It was. Yeah. Yep. So, so Webster's realised that the woman who was doing the uh, the press room at the time, Peter McKay's wife, Sharon, she'd been doing the washing up and there was no drain there. It actually just went out on the pit lane entry road. So he famously had the opening line the next day, a sink full of soapy water cost Peter Brock victory yesterday at Amaru <laughs> Park. Of course, Sharon nearly necked herself because she thought it was her fault. But Brock being Brock, hey, polished 
polish the guru, you know, fantastic. He didn't make a mistake, you know, it was all because of that water. Whereas, <laughs> in fact, he was going about 40 k's too fast as he came into the pit lane. So it was quite fun. Never do the dishes at a racetrack. No, track. absolutely. Never, no, ever no, do no, the dishes. No, no, no. Speaking of Brock, tell me about the Peugeot 12-hour program that you ended up wrapped up in. There was three cars, I think, that his mob were running at the time. Um, Advantage Racing. Advantage Racing, which yeah. was running, which never had any money, never no. had enough money, but does a deal with the local importer of Peugeot to run a couple of 4 oh, trio of 405s. No, no, four, yeah, 405 MI16s yeah. they so were. So there's Brock Crompton, I think, and McKay, Peter Correct. McKay in one. Yeah, there's yeah, a journo yeah. car with yourself, Bob and, Jennings, and, and, and Ian, Luff. Ian Luff, the driving instructor. Yep. yep. And there's a third car, I think, with Skippy Parsons, Mark McLaughlin, Troy Dunstan. Exactly correct. And you were entered in 45, but the car number 45. Yes. But you didn't get to race car number 45. No. Why so? Well, it was interesting. In practice, um, Brock came out of Hell Corner going up, up Mountain Straight, and Ian Luff pulled out and overtook him in our car, our car in inverted commas, so he's in 45. Brock came on the radio, I want that car. So he was swapped across, but under the regulations, one of the drivers from each car had to stay in the original car. Mm. So I guess I was the least rubbish of the rubbish drivers, <laughs> or, or I would do what I was told, and I stayed in 45 and Brockton, Brock and Crompton came across. Poor old Pete McKay had to stay in 05, and he got Jennings and, what's his name, and Luff. Uh and then it sort of went from there. But what an amazing weekend. You know, you got nine blokes. I still remember the race suits. They had nine race suits, one fitted. <laughs> Brock's one fitted yeah. perfectly. <clears throat> they were from a brand called Stan 21 in yeah. France. All the rest of them, you looked like they'd got all the measurements and then cut them up, thrown them up in the air. So Pete McKay's one, who's a tall, skinny bloke, like he's had lots of gut space and no legs and mine had no, <laughs> you know, it just was horrible. And then, of course, Crompton and I ended up in this Peugeot with Brock. Now, the interest, the really interesting thing about this, I asked the marketing guy at Peugeot why they were doing it. He said, it's really simple. We want people to understand how to say Peugeot. I thought, yeah, that's great. What a great – that was the bottom line, you know? If that as simple was a, as that. As simple as that. Not we want and, to build a brand or we want to sell no, more cars. No, no, no. We want it. people to and know that it's called Peugeot. Cool. And I still remember the first interview Brock did, the people came up. He said, so what do you think? He said, Peugeot. <laughs> <laughs> the same as he always said, Bathurst. Yeah. <laughs> Two words, right? And so – but, you know, yeah, we drove in the race. Um, Brock bolted the seat in where he wanted it, which meant I couldn't reach the steering wheel, neither could Crompton. Um, so we had these huge pieces of foam, uh, and then Brock gave us all this big, big, big story before the race started. These cars are production cars. You must not punish the brakes. You must take things easy, all of that stuff. Forgotten where he qualified, but within the first half hour, he was eighth, and in the second hour, he pulled up, and the brakes looked like Smith's crinkle-cut chips. They were destroyed. So do as I say. Typical Not Brock. as I do. No, and, and Thomas, it was Thomas, fine when Thomas I gave Mazzera, it to you. if you're listening, <laughs> Thomas knows exactly what I'm talking about because Thomas always got to carry the cam when Brock did something wrong, always Thomas's fault. Um, and, you know, I had an interesting day. I drove the car and I, for all time I can say I was a Peter Brock co-driver at Bathurst. This is true. This is true. Absolutely. We, we jumped off the the – the journalism career oh, topic here, but we're going to jump all, around here. That's, that's all, what we that's do. That's all boring anyway. Yeah, you know no, what I mean? No, no, it's important. It's important. It helps explain to people how you got to where you got to. And So Canberra Times, yep. um, we've lifted motoring and got that up yep. and going. How long are you there for? Is, was, is this in the period where we're in 80s here, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it was a great time, a really, really good time because in those days the car industry wasn't quite so busy and so – you would. I was the full-time motorsport and motoring guy, so I went to all the touring car rounds, 
Bathurst, Sandown, all the sprint races. I went to the Australian Rally Championship. I was very lucky. Datsun, then Nissan, took a group of us to cover the Rally Championship, so you'd go and do that. Uh, I'd go out to the Skids every Saturday night out at uh, out at Trailer Raceway uh, down in Canberra, and then you reported the car industry, so new car releases and finances and who made money and who didn't make money. Drove some absolute munters through that period. <laughs> Come on, name them. What well, oh, was the munter? Uh, uh, well, hang on, how long have we got? Oh, exactly correct. You know, Diesel Gemini comes to mind. <laughs> one of the one of the best handling cars with the worst engine in Christendom. Um, the four-cylinder Commodore, also not a great car. Still remember that one of the first press launches I went to was the XD Falcon. Mm. And I remember driving the 351 GT on the slippery uh, roads at the... Yu Yang's proving ground at Ford and managed to have a spin. Didn't hit anything. Thought I was going to. Came back in, was horribly embarrassed until I found out that Edsel Ford was there that day driving his father, Henry Ford, the second around, and he spun on the same corner. Only he hit a post. Oh, well, he did better. Yep. And uh, that's one of my earliest memories of Mark Fogarty, one of my colleagues, journalistic colleague and and protagonist and whatever over the years. And uh, Henry actually told him to sit down and shut up after he'd <laughs> asked the same question because at that point they were looking to buy Mazda. And uh, Fogarty got up typically Fogarty, and asked the brash question, and he didn't answer it. So Fogarty got up again and tried again. <laughs> and the third time he got up, old Hink the Deuce, who was a tough, tough, tough man, used to sack people by removing their offices. So <laughs> there'll be a floor on an o- and there'd be four offices, and on Monday there'd be three. That says something. And uh, the person would come in and go, I'm, oh, dear, this doesn't about. bode well. <laughs> I've seen some drivers sacked over the years, but uh, nothing quite oh. as brutal as that. Oh, oh well, well, go on. Uh, well, uh, Bathurst one year with uh, – I was covering the pit lane for Channel mm. 10. God, that was a long time ago. Anyway. So we're talking I've about got, 04, a, 2004, I've, I think it was. I think so. I've got a Logie. I should have a Logie somewhere because it was a Logie telecast. True. Same as you should probably you have You and one. I are the same. Absol- we're pit reported on Logie well, yeah, winning Bathurst. Perhaps not go. gold Logies, but silvers. Oh, well, and, whatever, uh, we'll take whatever we can get. I remember – I can't remember the guy's name. You'll remember the name because you know everybody. But yeah. Paul Morris's co-driver, Alan Gurr, had been the car. And I went down and I said to Morris, how do you feel about that? And he said, that bloke will never drive for me ever again. And I thought, what a great piece of TV, action-packed and it, which is great, until the next day when his PR man rang up and said, uh, mate, we're about to throw you under the bus. I said, what? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, we're going to say that you you forced Paul to say those things on the TV. Yes, I said, why is that? And he said, well, because the company business is called Cirame and it crashed the website yesterday with complaints from readers. Really? Listeners and readers. Yeah, yeah, that had such a negative reaction. But Paul has pretty much carried on in the same vein, sacked a few people. Well, I think Alan Gerd did end up still driving there anyway. In yes, the he aftermath, did. So. Yeah, but he did have to do – remember, he did the sign writing on the cars. Yes. So yeah. probably Paul kept him on to do both, more likely the sign writing. Right, right. Any other sackings? Uh, no. Have you been sacked? Uh, no, not that oh, I that's good. You've, you've I've sacked well. myself a couple of yeah. times, <laughs> which is fair enough. You know, when you're not doing a good enough job, you just go, no, stop, don't do this anymore. When you said before about um, Mark Fogarty, who's a long-time journo, yep. um, and you talk about antagonistic, is that a competitive antagonism for chasing stories and oh, being first absolutely. to get things? Because that's yeah, the yeah. driving. As a younger bloke, um, my little in in the industry was at Motorsport News Magazine and yep. us in Auto I think Action. I worked for Motorsport, Motorsport Magazine. Yeah, yeah, you did. You've done plenty of and that's what it's about. Yeah, but it's yeah, about it's a- the, it was us and them. It was our own little world, but um, that that competitiveness for a story hasn't changed, even though the outlet, whether it's you know print's not as much anymore in news, yep. it's it's online and it's social media. But 
the premise of it all, the guts of it, is still the same. So is that when you say antagonistic, it's not so much a personality thing, but it's a... It's combative. Yeah. It's combative. When I first met him, I worked for the local rubbish newspaper, or so he thought, and he worked for The Age out of Melbourne. He was a high flyer, relatively speaking. I was a nothing burger. And these days, I'm still a nothing burger, and he is too. (laughs) But we have a great time, you know, and, and, you know, I've known him through good times and bads. He lived in Europe for a long time. He lived in America for a while. I've travelled around a lot. And so we have lots of weird stories, you know, like being at a motor show in Geneva one year somehow and ended up sharing a room with a third person who was a guest of his. And I'll leave that where yeah. you <laughs> leave that one hanging. That was quite interesting. That, uh, that, that conversation is slow to stand still very quickly. Yeah. Um, you've driven some amazing cars over the years in your yep. journalistic life. Um, cars that uh, are really only the domain of the pilots who get to race them and yep. do the great things with them. Bathurst winning cars, Dick Johnson Sierras, we're talking World Rally cars, we're talking Sprint know, cars. A, a long list. What, what's your standout one? Uh, I, I really think I, the reason I interjected them with Sprint car is because the Sprint car is the most visceral thing that I've ever driven. Um it's to give you some idea. It's like sitting on the toilet with a sumo wrestler giving you a big hug. Um, that's about the driving position. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to illustrate that. No, that. no. And then to accelerate in a sprint car, you curl up your toes in your boot. You don't move your foot. You just curl up your toes, and the thing lights out in the way it goes. And when you get the thing, I was. I'm trying not to be a smart ass and a, and a blowhard here. Go on, do but it. I could drive yeah. – no, no, no. I could drive the thing quick enough to be competitive, right? And when you get it up, it's like a speedboat up on the plane and you can do almost anything with it. And George Tatnell, who was the first guy who let me drive one of his cars back in the Winfield days, um, he was giving me some coaching. And then afterwards, being George, because he was a bit dodgy, as you would remember, <laughs> uh, he tried to sell me a sprint car. He said, <laughs> I'll come down and run it for you because you could be all right. So I thought that was fantastic. But I had started off in rally cars, and so driving a sprint car was pretty natural to me to have the sli- the thing sliding and jumping around. That was amazing. I've driven an old-timer Formula One Renault, stick it up as something that it wasn't. But let me tell you, there is nothing quite like the way those things accelerate up the chute. Um that was really, really memorable. Just was five degrees, Paul Ricard, not very many laps. Um, had some fun doing that. Also drove a 962 Porsche, which had won the Daytona 24-hour race um, with Derek Bell and some other luminaries, John Andretti, I think, although mm. they didn't let out John Andretti drive in the dark because he was so hopeless. And it was a Miller Lite car? Yeah, Miller yeah, Lite car. Right. Yeah. It's a beautiful-looking car. I drove Insistent. that. And... Uh, and that was amazing because the seat's on a runner. You can slide the seat back as forward. It's got a synchromesh gearbox, and yet it goes really, really well. And that was also one of the first times I met crazy Robbie Gordon. Uh-huh. And he was actually there doing something else, and he asked if he could have a drive around in the Porsche, uh, which was a piece of history, as you would imagine, and then came back in after his first in and said, what's the lap record round here? Is that Sound familiar for the bloke you see driving stadium trucks? It was crazy then, it's crazy now, but, you know, great company. But you wouldn't really want him as your co-driver, I don't mm, think. No, might use the gear up a little bit. Yeah. What's is there a point there where you've done, you've travelled the world, you've been paid to write about something that you love? Yep. Uh, have you had to pinch yourself occasionally to go? Occasionally, oh, well, occasionally. regularly to go. Look what I'm driving. Look where I am. Yeah. Look what I'm seeing. Look what I'm experiencing. Look at the the access, the inner sanctum, the the stories that other people don't get. And that's one of the insights of why we wanted to talk to you on this podcast. Yeah. Um, because you have been to so many places, you do have viewpoints and opinions on things. Yeah. Uh, every now and then, or is it regular that you go, 
How good is this? Had this, one. This is I have I have them regularly. Um, I had one very recently at a TCR race of all things. Will Brown, who's won half the races, you know, through the current season, came up to tell me what had gone wrong. I didn't have to go and chase him. I thought, why are you following me? He said, oh, you're the guru, mate. <laughs> you know, and I thought, oh, no, I'm just old. Um, but, you know, then, then I was at something a little while ago and I was talking to Dario Franchitti and then we got interrupted by McDoohan. And, as you do. Yeah, as you do. And then, then we got interrupted by Lord March. So we're at Goodwood. As, right? as you do. So, and the thing about it is I know these people well enough that they know me by sight and they know that I'm a crazy Aussie and I say what I like. And so it makes it really easy. A lot of, you know, um, the same weekend I bumped into Dan Ricardo, you know, and, and we wanted to do a selfie. But then I introduced myself because I'm older now and I can be a little bit brash. You know, I went up and introduced myself to Lando Norris because he was driving a McLaren Can-Am car. Cool. And and see that. So that's one weekend. That's like ten things. And then I went to a Bentley's hundredth anniversary, and I'm one of two Australian journalists there, seeing the future of Bentley and amazing technology and stuff. And from a motor racing point of view, you know, like I've worked the Grand Prix every year that's been in Melbourne for the Herald Sun newspaper. And raced there as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. Audi yeah, no, I have. Audi yeah, Supertura. That's on my list. We'll get to yeah, it. Yeah, no. Audi Supertura and uh, uh, Aussie Racing Car. And I also did the Ultimate Speed Comparison. And we have to talk about that because that's very funny. We will talk about that. Um, yep. So, yeah. So, the thing about it is I've done enough that I'm, I'm not a complete – idiot when I talk to people but also because you're chasing stories and you have that mindset I don't mind bowling up and saying hello I'm Paul have you got a second and invariably if you're polite about it unless it's Kimi Raikkonen on a bad day <laughs> actually does Any Kimi day? Raikkonen have good days yeah <laughs> anyway but you know what I mean it's it's pretty easy um, and also I've grown up through generations of touring car and then supercar drivers so most of them I've known since they were very young and they may not like what I say sometimes, and that happens, uh, and that's fine. But, you know, like Davey Reynolds and I have a stupid relationship, you know, after he had his meltdown at, at Bathurst, he asked me to go back into the truck with him. No, no, it wasn't like that. Um, but he wanted to explain to me what had gone wrong once his brain cleared. As his brain cleared, he began to tell me what had actually gone wrong and how it had all unfolded and everything. So that was a really amazing insight moment, all of that. And then to try and communicate that to people – um, one year I was at Bathurst and Brad Jones and uh, I've forgotten who's co-driving, you'll remember. Anyway, so they're competing with Scaife and with Tony uh, th Longhurst. This is the John Cleland, 2001, they're right. racing for the win Yeah, again. okay. Yep. So I, I walk up to Brad Jones's pit. Now, anybody, I'm, I'm a mate of Brad's. I don't mind saying that. I love him and Kim, but I do call them the Dodgy Brothers because they are. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Kim's wife said to me, can you get up on the timing stand for a minute because I think Tim's, Kim's going to have a heart attack. And she wasn't joking. I looked up and he is bright red, hyperventilating and not well. So I get up and I start to calm him down. And, uh, and while this is all going on, Tony Longhurst comes walking up. Now, what we didn't know, but Tony did, was the, the scafe car was overheating. So he comes up and he says to Kim, hey, Kim, look, you blokes can't beat us. Why don't we just call it off and we'll just coast home from here and everybody be happy. And Kim just turned and said, oh, fuck off. <laughs> and I remember writing the day, the next day, sometimes good guys don't win. And I wrote the inside story of what it would have been like to be with those guys. So when you say I've been blessed, and I have been blessed, absolutely kissed on the private parts and all of that stuff, but I have some great stories with people that I know and respect. You know, I've been at Bathurst with Scaife 
where he's told me on Thursday what's going to happen on Sunday afternoon. I've been at Bathurst with the year that the tyres were delaminating. Mm, I wait, I think that was. Yeah, I walked into Roland Dane's garage and they had a tyre which had been damaged and Roland said to me, you can come in here, you don't print anything till Sunday night. And what had happened, they had realised that the curb at uh, Turn 2, on the turn exit. Two, yeah, yep. it was cutting the tyres. They stood there, we're back wheels up tighter to make it, you know, took the neg camber off it. They had a plan from day one. And on Sunday night, I wrote the story, Triple Eight won the Bathurst race on Thursday afternoon. And nobody else knew. You know, mm. it's that sort of stuff. And then there's stuff that you just carry around for 20, 30 years and don't use until the time's right. Or someone like me walks along and says, hey, can we stick a microphone under your nose? Yeah, that helps. Or but, ask but, the right question to get the right response. Yeah, and some of them, of course, you've got to wait till they die. Yeah. How, how old is John Bauer, really? <laughs> 67, let me tell you, right 67, now. right, okay. Because <laughs> he used quoted, to be... A, what's the quoted number? Uh, I think it's 64 or 65 at the moment. But remember that he started off older than me, and for 25 years he was younger than me. It's <laughs> only in recent years. We'll catch years. you back up. We'll yeah, catch you back well, up. Yeah, it's all getting there. Uh, we, one of the things I'm really interested in, the technology of for journalists has changed so yep. much from um, you know the gear you would have used in yes. the early days in New South Wales with – uh, you know, no computers, no digital things. You know, we've got these things called phones that you can do just about anything on these days. You can yep. take a photo and beam it anywhere around the world for people to see. Yep. Uh, but the, at the core of it, one of – and I've known you for, I don't know, 20-odd years. Yeah. One of the things that I've always appreciated about your work is that you can tell a story, but you can find the crux of the story – but then find the bits that other people can't. Even though the technology's changed, that still remains, I guess, the – the aim of the game. No matter how you tell it and what format it comes in, yep. that bit's not, not changed. No, 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 no. And and I was, uh, I mean, I've always had an inquiring mind, um, which is probably why I didn't work very well in the army. Mm. Why are we doing that? <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. Um, so I've always wanted to know the backstory. But years later, I didn't. I, that's what I've always done. But years later, I remember there was a sports editor at the Herald Sun newspaper, one of the toughest, meanest blokes I've ever met called Phil Gardner. And he used to famously interview people by putting his feet up on the desk saying, this is the best newspaper in Australia. What makes you think you belong here? Not a bad opening that's line. a pretty good one. Yeah. But he told me, don't you ever tell me what I saw yesterday. Now, whether that's on the TV or whatever, you tell me why I saw what I saw. It's probably a thing that a lot of journos need reminding of. Oh, absolutely. Nobody cares about your opinion. Go and find the people who know what. It's like Davey Reynolds. Okay, so he has a meltdown on national TV and half the story is, oh, he's he's wigged out. They've had to take him out of the car, blah, blah, blah. But when you actually stood and talked to him and backed up how it had happened, ask him the hard questions. Did you drink properly? Did you hydrate properly? Did you have your regular blah, 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 all that sort of stuff? You have to get to the bottom of the question and don't and, – and also the other thing is ask the next question. If it gets ugly, ask the next question. Famously, Mark Scaife and I have had quite a combative relationship again over the years. I used to go at him till his legs started to twitch and anybody who will tell you – Did he lick well, his lips as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're the signs in the press conference oh, yeah, he was yeah, about yeah. to And rip. I would go at him. I still remember once he was sitting and I'd forgotten who beat him. We're at Oran Park and he said, you know, you know, I had a good day today and I'm happy with that and da-da-da. And I just said to him, Mark, since when are you happy coming second? And the leg went and he went straight at me like, I'll tell you this and blah-blah-blah. Famously, another one, uh, Ron Dennis, the year after the, the rigged result. Remember the year at the Australian Grand Prix? 
Yep. With um, Hakkinen. Hakkinen yep. and, and, and... Doing and, the swap, Coulthard, yep. 98. Yep. So they have a press conference and I'm sitting in the front row. First question. So, Mr. Dennis, are you going to rig the race again for us this year? Well, no warm-up questions. Just no, straight no, just in. Straight, well, you Why get, not? Absolutely. Um, and then remember uh, a couple of years ago at the Grand Prix when they were talking about the party mode, mm. right? And they were talking about it and, and Vettel said to Hamilton... Oh, you can party today and we'll party tomorrow night after we've won the race. You know, you've got to get them out of the comfort zone. Every, and the problem with motorsport today is everybody's coached. Mm. Everybody's got a sponsor. Everybody's got a media manager. And they all – Brock was the best. Peter, the engine just blew up. Oh, the 05 car was fantastic day. But Peter, the engine blew up. Oh, I was, I'd set the fastest lap and I was like, but Peter, the engine blew up. He would never answer the question. He mm. would just tell you what he was. And he's like, politicians are like that. Mm. Do you listen to AM in the morning on the ABC? Mm. I turn it off a lot of mornings when politicians are on because they don't listen to the question. They're not interested in answering the question. And instead of saying, I can't tell you that or I won't tell you, that's, that's another interesting thing in journalism. When people say to you, I can't tell you that, you go, no, 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 you can't tell me that or you won't tell me that, mm, which is a very difference. big difference, you know. And that happens a lot when something goes wrong, particularly at a big race like Bathurst or one of the Enduros, and they say, oh, I can't tell you. No, no, you won't tell me, will you? How about if I guess? <laughs> and <laughs> I nine warm? times out of ten, you guess and mm. you're not wrong. And they go, but I can't say, I can't tell you, you that. You can write that, but I didn't say that. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I get that all the time. Have you ever broken an embargo? Uh, not deliberately. I have a couple of times when I was in magazine land um, because anybody – you remember magazines? They used to be sold at news agents, <laughs> which are now where you go to buy your lottery tickets. Yeah. But um, because it, they had like two or three-month deadlines, it was easy to get wrong by a couple of days. Mm. Um, and I think once I deliberately broke an embargo because of an argument with the person involved and said, that's a stupid, ridiculous embargo and it suits my competitors, so I'm going to break it. And they went, oh, yeah, sure you will. So I did. And then we didn't have that problem again. <laughs> <laughs> Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint. May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. One of the things that I guess modern sports, I mean, you touched on it before, modern sports, men and women, they're over PR'd, they're over um, coddled, sponsor driven, <laughs> focused, yep. mention all the sponsors, say all the nice things, do all the right things. But that's not different to any other sport or any other industry where the same pressures are there. Are we in, uh, we're a niche sport, let's face it. We're not AFL or NRL or cricket. No. So we kind of need to step out of our little groove that we've got. But every time I talk to people in those sports, they really admire and respect our guys and girls for how professional they are, for how they go about it. Yet we go, well, we want a bit more. We want something to be different. What can we do to satisfy the requirements of the modern world but also get more whether it's David Reynolds or whoever it is with a, a, something that's a bit different, what, what do we Where have to do? Where are you going do? with this, Murph? Do, Ask a question. <laughs> do we ha- what do, what's, your, what's your take? How do we – It's really simple. It's it. really simple. They can't all be the good guy. 
Someone's got to be the bad All guy. All of them want to be the good guy. That's true. Everybody wants to be nicey, nice and liked and happy. So we need. So basically, you need we bad need bad guys. We need someone to follow in the lineage of Grice, Al- Alan Ingle, Moffat. Let's Moffat. go back. Moffat, Ingle, Grice. Sometimes Greg Murphy. Sometimes Marcus Ambrose. Sometimes <gasps> Mark Scaife. You know, who, who, who's your the- nomination? Who, who's the most likely to not only gladly receive the black cap, but also go and grab it? I don't think anyone's going to no, go grab nobody's it. Nobody's going to grab it. I mean, the most obvious guy to me at the moment is Shane Van Gisbergen. Um, he's done some things which have really angered a whole lot of the fan base. They've pissed off his rivals. Um, he is the guy that has the Eton Centre effect. Uh, Senna used to say when they looked in the mirror and saw the yellow helmet, he wanted to move out of the way. Well, I can tell you now, Van Gisbergen's the one. Has he brake tested people in practice and qualifying sessions? Has he cut people off? Does he give them one millimetre less room than they really need? Absolutely. But has anybody painted him that way? No, because he's a nice guy when he gets out of the car. But remember Jim Richards? Mr. Nice mm-hmm. was the biggest punt artist going around, <laughs> but used to always come and apologise afterward, and everybody went, oh, Jimmy, he's such a good bloke. And he was out of the car, but in the car, absolute animal of a bloke. Mm. I can remember being at Oran Park when he turned around poor old Glenn Seaton to win a touring car championship. Now, he says, well, Glenn wasn't going to win anyway, but, you know, the fact that he unloaded him or whatever, you know, uh, I've been at Oscar and NASCAR races where he unloaded people. Gentleman Jim. Nah, that was, that was probably UTV blokes who came away with that. Me, None I wasn't the, around then. That's before no, no, my no, time. No, it was the people that created people like you. Oh, you know, I don't think anyone created someone like me. No, no, no. You're no right. One could be guilty but, I mean, of that. But so the thing about it is, you know, Russell Ingle. The day that he got the nickname, the Enforcer, that was me. We were we were at uh, at Phillip Island. He brake tested. Poor old Glenn. Here comes Glenn Seaton again. Say, he's, Glenn a had a he's, a serial, he's a serial victim, really, when you think it. Well, he forgot to tie his helmet up famously he once right. on a qualifying lap at Bathurst. Mm. Yeah, but the thing about it was, I said to him, you remind me of Dale Earnhardt. I'm going to call you the enforcer. And he went, oh, that's beaut. Yeah, great. Way you go. And he picked it up and ran with it. Now, unfortunately... I never got a dollar for the marketing rights. You never trademarked it, did you? No, no. no. And, and he, Rookie and, mistake. Well, and he very craftily, uh, until this year, had actually not acknowledged that it was my nickname. But I've come up with a few others over the years. Um, but the thing about it is he was happy to be the black hat because he realised that that was a good place to be. Now, the fact is also he can be a really evil asshole um, when he <laughs> wants to be. Um, but but is he any worse in some ways than, than Ambrose was? Ambrose turned up at Stone Brothers Racing and told me his first mission was to destroy his then teammate, David Bernard. And he did. Absolutely. But you know how he did it? He used to go to the workshop every day. He took the bloke's lunch. He used to take him out to the speedway. He became part of the team and he built the team around him and poor old David was pushed out on the side. Now, the fact is Ambrose was a very special driver and I've had a few run-ins with him over the years. You know, he would say to me, how's your mate Scaife? <laughs> and then I'd walk down to Scaife and he'd go, how's your mate Ambrose? Which meant I was doing my job because yeah. they both thought you I was in the going. pocket of the other bloke. Well, yeah. the other thing was anytime I wanted a story, I'd just ring up Ambrose and go, Scaife just said A, and he would go off or vice versa, you know, so it's good. But, you know, they crashed into each other on an outlap at Oran Park one day That's in a right, practice they did session. they too, yeah. 
10 minutes after I was standing there watching, talking to them, and they were so wound up. But that's the sporting rivalry. And the thing about it is you talk about the difference between motor racing and those sporting teams. The sporting teams, like a Collingwood, you know, who do you barrack for? Oh, you know, St Kilda and anybody playing Collingwood. That, that history goes back a long way. Motor racing, we don't have the same sort of rival except Ford versus Holden, and even that's gone away now mm. that they don't make, make cars. But really, if I was in charge of supercars, I'd get all the drivers in a room, shut the door, and swear them to secrecy and go, right, you're the bad guy, you're the wimp, you're the this, you're the that, mm. and then and but but be who they really are, but just turn the turn the volume up, yeah, you know, but then not get them fined. Davy Reynolds, pussy wagon. How much was the fine? $25,000. And they wanted to fine him 200000 And the main reason was because they were worried about it upsetting a potential sponsor that was going to be in supercars racing. The fact was, for six months before that, in the workshop, they'd called that car the Pussy Wagon. And he just said what everybody else had been saying in the workshop. The other thing is, have you watched the movie with the Pussy Wagon in it, Kill Bill? Not for a long time. No, but, you know, like it's not like it's a, a unique thing, but... To penalise a guy that much is that more a reflection of the society that we're in now than supercars or motorsport? No, I think that was just a classic overreaction, mm. mate. If that was a if that was a crash, that would be something. It actually would be like Fabian's big one at the at the chase. It just mm. went on and on and on. Not still small. going, I think. He's Absolutely, still up there. yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but no, look, we can have political correctness up to a point, but people don't want all their heroes to be grey. And that's where we're going. Everybody's grey or mediocre or not impressed, you know. Emotion, emotion, emotion. It's really hard to drive a race car. It's even harder to drive a race car fast and ask anybody in the back half of the field. It's almost impossible to win a race. So why can't they be like that, you know? Even Lewis Hamilton, who when he was younger was a gold-plated prat, has actually turned out to be, these days, says some quite eloquent things, you know. And, and you can see the emotion with the guy. But... Emerson Fittipaldi, I just watched a video tonight of him in the Lotus 72 from, nine, you know, way back in the day when he won the world championship in the car, crying when he got back in the car. And I can tell you, lots of these motorsport guys, when they get older and you hear the real stories, because then they're not fighting and mm. not combating. The but war's that's, over. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why your, your, your podcast works so well, because the war's over and they'll happily tell you the stories. Mm. What's, go on, ask me. I, I want you to ask me what's the bravest thing I've ever seen in motorsport. I'll ask you later. I don't want to do it. I run the show. This is mine. Oh, What's okay. the bravest thing in motorsport, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, tell me. I'll tell you now. Um, very simple. Larry Perkins, the day he retired at Bathurst. The 2003, when he crashed he into crashed. the gate at the cutting. Yeah, he crashed into the gate at the cutting, and he came down half an hour later to the media room, and he walked in, and he pointed at me, he said, you, and you, and you, and you, and you, to the A-grade Journos? The, the journos who were the, the Metropolitan yep. Dailies. Yeah, the, the Metro Dailies. All of you over here now. And we all came over and thought, oh, great. What have another. we done now? Yeah, absolutely. Because Larry, oh, yes, I still, I will never forget my phone call from, first phone call from Larry. Anyway, he called us over and he said, okay, use Blake's name pretty well. I used to complain about those once a year wankers who were a danger to shipping. And we all went, yep. And he went, well, now I am one, so I'm quitting. And on the spot, just said he was retiring. Didn't think about it, knew he shouldn't have been there. How brave, though, to come, not sneak off or not tell people that he hadn't retired. Are you listening, Alan Moffat? Because <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Moffat never officially retired. In fact, no. I've spoken to him in the last six months. He still oh, hasn't. He still hasn't officially said, I have retired. But Larry came down. One, he owned up to the fact that he was a wanker. 
Two, he had the bravery to do it. But three, he delivered on what he'd always said, that those people shouldn't be there who are once-a-year warriors. Mm. And so he got out. He did. And that was, I think, on Saturday morning practice. Yep. He did the race with Stephen Richards on Sunday, and that is his last Correct. race. And remember that this is the bloke who was such a tightwad, even though he got the Formula One, you know, used to buy his pairs of driving shoes and he'd buy two rights and one left because he was such a cheap set. He knew he was only going to wear out the accelerator and brake shoe, <laughs> not not the clutch one. Uh, what was your first LP story that oh, you mentioned? Oh, yeah. So way back in the day. Was it a pull through or was it? Oh, it was a massive pull through. Um, so the background of the story is Brock and Perkins were going to go to to Le Mans in mm-hmm. a in a Bob Jane team arts Porsche. Uh, in the old days, very old days, often the hard copy photos didn't turn up in time. So I wrote the story about them going to Le Mans and the following week the photo turned up of them with the team arts car and I thought, oh, I've got to find a way to run this in the paper. This is in Canberra. So um, Alan Grice said he was going to go to Le Mans as well. Typically, he, anything Brock can do, he would do. So I wrote the story about him going also to Le Mans, but I ran the photo of Brock and Perkins, right? Anyway, the phone rings, ring, 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 hello. Is that Paul Gover? And I said, yes, it is. And he goes, this is Larry Perkins, UFC. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, that was the first and conversation. And it wasn't fine chap. No. 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 Feisty chap, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it went downhill from there. And, you know, you got sucked in by that Grice. He's an asshole, And now you're an asshole too. And, of course, Larry and I now get along famously. <laughs> but And see, that's the other thing in, in, in motorsport journalism. Any form of journalism, if you chest up to somebody, if you stay with it when you know you're right, you get a result. If you back away, they've got you forever. It's exactly the same as parking up close to somebody so they can't open their driver's side door at the end of Pukekohe. Mm, once mm. they've done it once, they'll keep doing it. Mm. So you don't back away. Famously, my friend Wayne Webster from Daily Telegraph, I was at the pits at Amaru Park one day and this guy was ripping into him like you couldn't believe how unprofessional and what a dick he was and he knew nothing about motor racing. He was just standing smiling at him. He said, keep going. The guy's what? And away he goes again. Keep going. He said, why am I keeping going? He said, well, you tell me what you think about me and tomorrow I'll tell three million people what I think of you. <laughs> and he did. And after that, the guy never <laughs> never backed him who up. Who was this guy? Just some, some guy. Mid, mid-level touring car bloke who thought he knew better than a guy who'd been following motorsport for 20 years. Dispatched. Over the fence. Oh, six, yeah. Over and out. Straight yeah. out. Boom. Yeah. Well, tell me about the um, – I really want to go into some of the bits that I guess there's almost a perception from the race fans of, oh, the media. It's in the media. The media make everything up. The media do this. The media yeah. do that. It's all the media's fault. It's all the Don't media's fault. Don't forget that. It's yeah, the media's it's, fault. It's all the media's fault. Oh, and they're wrong. That too. Invariably, they're wrong. That too. How – What's your basic theory on clearly any journalist in any field has yep. a, a trust, you know, has a network, has a, a phone list, has a used to be written in a book, it's now on a phone. Yeah, uh, you go to people, and obviously you don't give that up anywhere. The way yep. that you find out stories, the way that you can almost engineer them backwards, where you you find the actual what's happened, but you need to find what got there, or you found one little bit along the way, yeah, you link yep. it all together. Tell me about your theory on, on all of that. Um, and and the art of journalism, I guess. I think the art of journalism, as I said before, is about having an inquiring mind and asking the next question, but also paying attention to stupid little things. And I'll give you an example. I once read in Autosport magazine out of England that Tom Walkinshaw was going to step back from running Walkinshaw to go to Formula One. At the time, John Crennan, 
was running Holden Special Vehicles, obviously, to my way of thinking, the heir apparent. I picked up the phone, I rang Crenna, and I said, oh, mate, congratulations on the job in England. When are you leaving? And he said, oh, not for a couple of months. Uh, How did you know? Yeah, You just told me. I just, exactly that. I said to him, you just told me. And part of it is intuition, and part of it is paying... Uh, a jigsaw puzzle game where you get one part of the jigsaw puzzle and some people can just look at it and go, oh, that means that, or, you know, that's a picture obviously of a monkey in your case. (laughs) Um, So there is a lot of that, but it's also knowing history and knowing how things fit together um, and why things happen. So when you're chasing down a story, um, it's about trying to put together a couple of pieces to get the picture um, and the good guys can do it with one piece of the puzzle or they know somebody who knows where the other pieces are, and that's the art of it, chasing down a story to get it the way you want it. Um, These days, a lot of people leak, um, and I'm not talking about WikiLeaks. I'm talking about people who are leaking a story because they want it to get out. It serves a purpose for them. Yeah, correct. So is there more of that now? Oh, unbelievable amount more of that. Because journalists are now outnumbered by PR people. Mm. Walk along the supercars pit lane. Every every team's got at least one PR person. Tell me how many decent journos there are in, in the pit lane these days. And I'll tell you, I've got five fingers and I don't need them all. How many do you need? <laughs> Probably three. Right. You know, and the other thing is the TV, because it's all about TV, 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 they tell the TV people. The TV people don't go and have to chase stories. You know, when was the last time a TV person really broke an important story? They don't because people want to be on the TV and they want it timed for their sponsor announcement. And so if there's a story about, I don't know, let's say... Resigning some drivers to a No, no, say Montoya was going to come and do a a, a guest. That'd be cool. Right. So say Montoya was coming to race at Bathurst. Um, They would give it to the TV because they can package it up and have it go out the way they want. Wow, Juan Montoya, Formula One driver, you know, indie superstar, comes to race, whereas I just go, fading star, uh, Juan Montoya's got nothing better to do than come to Australia. He's going to get pantsed. That's not how they want the story to be, or why was he coming out here, or whatever. And and, and that happens. He only came because there was a million dollars attached to yeah, it, or correct. whatever it is. Or because he always wanted to drive around Bathurst. I hear that all the time. Every driver you ever talk to, you know, oh, I'd love to come and drive at Bathurst. And then when they get there, they go, oh, Ooh, oh this, is, this is not what I expected. Mm. And because I've raced there a bit, um, and I've driven on a lot of other race tracks, either you know, particularly overseas. Lots and lots of press events are held at race tracks, and they say, "So, what's it like? It's just like the Nordschleife, you know, the the Nurburgring in Germany." I go, well, no, not really, because if you make a mistake, there are concrete walls at the Nordschleife. There are places where there's grass or there's runoff or whatever. Mm. Uh, if you make a top a mistake across the top of the mountain, you are slapping a wall, and your race is done. And fair chance you might get a bit of a, a bell ringer out of it as mm. well. And they don't understand until they get there, and then they go. <gasps> Now I know what you were talking about. Mm. And I have a headache to prove it. Yeah, correct. <laughs> and that, you know, how many people, you know, but then you, again, getting back to the other thing, you know, like I bumped into Annie Prio, you remember, who who mm. was a really good co-driver and did a great job in Australia in supercars. And, and you have a shared history, you know, you can talk about that. And he asked about how other blokes are going and that sort of stuff. What... um. What's your thoughts on the media? And I'm talking motorsport. Yeah, here. sure. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but motoring is a bit of an extension. Yeah. Um, it's the bigger element of it all. Yeah. But there's a real, in motorsport, the way it's just evolved um, and independence, I guess is the word I'm, I'm looking for yeah. here. It's very difficult in a sport that is, in essence, we're all in the same pond. 
whether you like it or not, whether you're in the media, whether yep. you're in a team, whether you're a driver, a sponsor, yep. an official, yep. we're kind of all in the same travelling circus. So, No, uh, we're not. No, you're wrong straight away. Well, no, no, no. It's just no, the no, way no. that it's evolved. There are, there are some who are not, and that's that's my point Absolutely, here. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, see, I see how it is and I get how it is because I'm in it yeah. to, a, to a degree. There's a real – the group of, I guess, journalists who are in the, the daily newspapers, the independents who yep. aren't – don't have conflicts of interest because they have clients in the sport and the like. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not talking about anything specifically. I, no, I, no, I no. am one of them. I'm not a journalist. Yeah, I haven't been for a very long time. Teams in the pit lane are clients. Supercars are a client. Uh, TCR is a client. I do things in motor racing, yeah, sure. and people yeah. pay me to do it. Uh, do you feel like the lack of independent reporters out there is hurting the sport? Absolutely. Absolutely, and I think it comes back to me every time I turn the TV and I want to throw a brick at it when they say, here we are. It's not we, it's they. Ron Dennis famously said, we make history, you merely write about it. And that's correct. There should be a barrier between the people reporting the action and the people who are doing the action. Also annoys me in Melbourne, got to say, when you come in on Monday and go, Ah, oh, weren't we great on the weekend? You say to somebody, I didn't see you on the field, mate. <laughs> you know, this, didn't that, you know I've won four flags with the Hawks? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but they, they buy in. But the problem with it is you need to step back and go, hang on, who do I work for? And one of the first things they told me, you don't work for the newspaper, you don't work for the website, you don't work for it. You work for the person who is reading. Right now I'm working for the people who are listening to this podcast and I'm trying to tell them stuff without a filter. And it's the same, no matter what job I do. I'm on radio a lot, and people ring up and go, should I buy car A or car B? And I say, well, are you stupid? Because you shouldn't be buying car B. I don't quite say you're stupid. but So I'm pay- being paid or whatever, or actually it's not. in my case it's not even being paid. I believe that you are supposed to be doing the job for the person who's assimilating your information. And that means you tell them the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now, you, are, you said before you're paid by TCR. I write for car sales who are the sponsor of the TCR series, but I don't sugarcoat the thing. Mm. If two cars turned up, I'd say two cars turned up was rubbish. I have to tell you, I watched recently a race at Tail and Bend, which was the best motor race I've seen for 10 years, passing and blokes crashing and guys making mistakes and all that. But as, a, as an enthusiast going back to the 1970s, I loved the racing. So I said that. And somebody rang me up, who's a team boss of a of a supercars team that wasn't Penske but very close to them in the pit lane and said, oh, yeah, but you get paid to say nice things. Well, no, I don't. I don't get paid to say nice things. I get paid to tell the truth. And the day that I don't tell the truth is the day that I shouldn't have a job. Um, and so, you know, when I worked in the pit lane that time doing the, you know, during the Tunnel 10 thing, there's a very simple reason why I only did it for San Anabathis that year, probably because they went, oh, he's a bit too, he asks hard questions. He's a bit too journo. Yeah. You know, let's have it, let's have it a little bit soppy, milky, nicey. <laughs> Is it easy as you've been around this scene to become cynical? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Every couple of years I get cynical about, um, supercars. Um, because or just I, about motoring, oh, automotive, yeah, yeah. the well, sport. Uh, yeah, no, automotive. Let me tell you, everybody says the world's going to be electric cars. <laughs> Not in Australia, mate. Not anytime soon in Australia. But, you know, some egghead boffin comes on the radio and says, you know, oh, we have a solar-powered car and it's going to run for 400 kilometres. Everybody goes, absolutely, we've got a solar power. Nobody says, hang on a minute, the physics doesn't work. Mm. You know, ask the question. Again, autonomous cars, cars that drive themselves. Great. 
when you've got a nice, clear, open road, highway, and the thing's just got to look at two white lines and keep it in the middle and go at a particular speed, fantastic, not a problem. Have you ever driven up the back roads up near Winton? Mm-hmm. You know, any twist, they won't work. Mm. And I know they don't work because I've had them and I've tried them. And, and so that makes you cynical. You know, that people, are, again, too many PR people in the world bombarding people who don't know and suddenly that's the perception. And it happens with drivers as well, you know, like, uh, you know, this bloke's a good driver, that bloke's a good driver, that whatever, and yet some of them you wouldn't pay to, you, you know, I wouldn't pay them to feed my cat, hmm. you know, because my cat needs feeding three times a day at a particular time. And so lots of race drivers, you know, as Brad Jones famously said, enough about me. What do you think of me? <laughs> and it's so true. They love hearing about themselves, you know. They and do, there are they do. very few that couldn't care less. There's mm. some in the Formula One land who say they don't read the, the press, and they don't. Kimi Raikkonen could not give a fuck mm. about what people write about him because he doesn't he no. doesn't care what his own team thinks about him. Mm. Um, but most of them do care, and it's part of their carefully crafted image and the fact that they earn money doing other things. And it makes you deeply cynical because you just go, be who you really are, for God's sake. Can't wait to be cynical more. Oh, I think you'd be cynical. I could name some names that would make you cynical. Oh, let's not do that. <laughs> let's, let, let's just let me live for a little while longer before I hit the well, cynical Well, you know, part the thing about, yeah, but the thing about it is what I do when I, I know I'm getting that way, I'll take a break for a while. Don't write about a particular topic, you know, the electric, you know, the electric mm. autonomous thing. I just don't talk about it at the moment. Um, there have been times when I've taken a break from going to supercar races. Um, to get energised and come back in and see a different bunch of people and see what's changed or what hasn't changed. Um, but I always stay in touch with people who can genuinely give me a, you know, a feed on what's really happening. And often that's the team bosses because they don't have any reason to tell you, oh, hang on, I've just contradicted myself. Do they have a reason to tell you an untruth? Uh, yes, they, yes do. they do. But once you find a couple that you can just pull them up and go, that's crap. Mm. And they go, yeah, well, you're right. True. You know, True. And then they tell you the right stuff. Over time, what's your best? What's your biggest scoop motorsport and your biggest scoop automotive? Oh, biggest scoop. Well, I once said that the polarizer worked, and and I still maintain that on that day the car I drove before and after Peter Brock fiddled with the car, it was better afterwards. Was it the polarizer? Probably not at the time. I believe what he told me, and that's fine. Which is not to say Peter lied, because I think Peter believed in the whole thing as well. So that was an amazing story. Um, you know, I've been around for so many things. Scoop. I mean, I've the, said the days of jo- that are really gone. Aren't yeah, they? but even in the back in the day, you know, like yeah, we had pictures of of cars that weren't hadn't come out yet, and and I remember writing a story about Holden in V eight engines blowing up, where where a guy, uh, the, the managing director of Holden, wanted to kill me. Uh, one of my favourite things was um, I was on a plane once, and the marketing director of Holden, the new Ford Falcon, had just come out. And said, "What do you think of the new Falcon?" He said, ah, "Pig in lipstick, still a pig." And I printed it, and there was a witch hunt at Holden to find out who'd said it when they all knew that it was Ross McKenzie, the marketing boss, because he had to then go and apologise to Holden. So that you know, there's lots of that sort of stuff, but but little. I am more proud of the insights. You know, the David Reynolds episode to tell what really happened. You know, the 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 you know the story at Bathurst. Um, I've been around since Lowndes was a boy. That's probably the best scoop that I never printed about motorsport. So, as you know, he fell off a motorbike not long before Bathurst. The year no, that he, 96, the year he won his first yeah, one. Yeah, the year he won his Bathurst, right? And uh, 
and somebody rang up and told me about it. Let's call him Kim Jones. <laughs> and said, hey, I hear Lowndes is really not well. He's fallen off a motorbike. And so I rang up the PR guy and I said, oh. Who was Wally Weissel? Yeah, Paul a guy Weissel. called Paul Weissel, known as Wally, famously also the, the courtside commentator for basketball. The Melbourne Tigers. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Ripper bloke. Yep. Went on to succeed in life by running a, a, a fruit shop. A fruit shop. That's right. Indeed. And we're still in touch. Anyway, I rang him up and I said, so I hear that Lowndes has got a head cold. And he went, you know, don't you? And I went, yep, I'm printing it tomorrow. And he went, if you print it, he won't race at Bathurst. I said, he won't what? be cleared. Correct. So he'd actually opened his head up down to the – they could see his brain, like he'd taken a chunk out of his skull. He also had uh, paralysis mm. in his arm and a whole lot of other, you know, and bell ring headache and all that sort of stuff. So I agreed with him that I wouldn't print the story. And as it turned out, as we all know, Craig went on and won the race and that – and Sunday. wore a hat all week. To wore cover a beanie. It up. No, no, wore was a, a beanie. He wore a beanie all week on the basis that he had a cold and had to keep warm. <laughs> and I still remember after the winner's press conference, I went up to him and said, "Okay, pull the beanie up and let me see." And he did, but he wouldn't let anybody take a picture of it. Yeah. And what's so uh, outrageous about, apart from all that stuff, he's riding a motorbike at dusk without a helmet on down by the Holland Racing Team. Like, what was he thinking? Mm. But another mate of mine, another great story from Bathurst. Um, Again, Wayne Webster from Daily Telegraph. We were heckle and jekyll for a long time. And he was writing his preview for Bathurst one year. And he said that Larry Perkins could win the race if only Greg Hansford could get focused on the job and act like a professional. Printed it. Whoa. The day of the race. After the race, we go in for the press conference. Which they won. Which they won. Mm. And before and Hansford sitting up the front looking at Webster. Webster's looking for something to hide under. <laughs> He's sitting next to me going, you'll protect me, won't you? You'll protect me, won't you? And Hansford, before they, they went to ask the first question, Hansford put his hand up and he said, before we get started, I want to thank that bloke down there. And he pointed straight at my mate Webster and said, if you hadn't written what you had written, we wouldn't have won the race today because you made me realise what I needed to do. And I think that's an amazing ability. You know, you talk about a scoop. That wasn't a scoop, but it was an amazing insight that a journalist brought and helped a guy win a race. So I'm in awe of the of that's the ability. Powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's powerful in a really, really good way. Because, you know, sometimes you see it, um, you can see people pumping up drivers or just saying, hey, don't stress, don't worry, it's all okay. And it's not from the team; it's from somebody outside, and it and it's more powerful for that reason. Sometimes, I've seen Neil Crompton, you know, coaching people. Paul Morris, who's now known as the driver whisperer, the driver dude, rather than yeah, well, the dirty no, he's dangerous the dr- dude. He's the yeah, yeah. Well, I've got the dirty dangerous t-shirt, dirty dangerous dude t-shirt hanging up downstairs because I think it's marvelous. But there are people now calling him the driver whisperer because he knows how to tune people in what it takes to win. Now. How many times? I think he was in the fence three years at, at Bathurst, the year that he won. I think he was in the mm. fence three times, which he says, dude, I don't care. Did we win the race? Yep. Absolutely, he won the race. But because he's made mistakes, he's very good at getting the best out of people as a driver coach. I always think one of the great secrets of survival in this sport or in motoring industry, whether you are a, particularly in media, is the greatest skill is listening than talking. And the yes. greatest skill, as well as that, is what you don't say and what you don't write than what you do write yeah. and what you do say. Yeah, and you get respect. Um, there are times when I've said something to somebody and then and they've said, are you going to print that? And I've said, no, but I've now said it, so let's move on. Um, I've had arguments with drivers. 
Colin Bond once had me by the throat and was going to punch my head in, literally punch me. What did you do? Uh, I wrote a story about how rubbish his team was in the Southern Cross Rally and, and that they had lost a rally. They should have won. And uh, about a month after that, Ford sacked them as a rally team and he blamed me, so he was going to punch me out. Um, I've had other people threaten me over the years. But the thing about it is you're quite right. It's about there is a relationship there, but I've always worked on the basis that I'm outside looking in. So – it annoys me when you see on the TV telecast when they say, here we are at blah. It's always here they are because there should be a barrier between – because you're not actually an active participant in the show, with the best – you know, all the respect in the world, I don't see you running out in the pit lane to change a tyre and I don't see me these days trying to jam into the seat. So, therefore, <laughs> you are reporting the action. You are not the action and far too many people in the media industry – think they're part of the action, that they're part of the show. You were talking before about, oh, we're all part of a circus. No, the circus travels and you write about the circus. Yeah, see, I, I disagree to a point. But I see what you're saying and yeah, agree yeah, yeah. with, with but the if, point. But, but it always helps you to add perspective if you say, I'm not part of the action. Now, mm-hmm. it's slightly different for you because you cop and earn from a whole lot of these people and yeah, I don't. very open about it. That's yeah. how I eat. That's, yeah, that's, that's how I pay correct. the mortgage. Yeah, so, and that's right. Whereas I've always worked on the basis that I'm trying to tell people stuff that they don't know or explain something to them. Mm-hmm. It can be something really simple and I, and I really like what uh, old mate Larko does demystifying supercars and how it works and why it works. I, I find his stuff fascinating because I can drive a car half passably, but I can't work a spanner without taking the you know all the skin off my fingers. I don't even get to that point. That's what mechanics are for. It's it's not. Well, that's go. all Larko. Like At the end of the day, that's all Larko really is. Just from Griffith, just, mate. A, just be careful. He's got he, friends in Griffith. He's got absolutely, friends. yes. He's right. got friends. It's got a long friends. way to where I live, though. <laughs> I'll tell him your address. It's okay. <laughs> hey, you. tell me about the time you drove Dick Johnson's Sierra. We're talking Group A cars, the start of that era. I mean, it's a car that a lot of people will remember watching on, on TV, yeah. but you got to drive it, I drove the twice. first iteration. And yeah, the, I, drove the, I drove the RS500, which was a really super fast one, and then I drove the other one, which was only half as scary but still stupid scary. And bear in mind at that time, because I was a young, enthusiastic journalist who hadn't done any, any and, much motor and where racing. where were you writing at the time? Uh, I, was, that was, I was writing for motor, motor Magazine right. and Wheels Magazine and, and – and, Racing car, not whatever racing, you know, a motorsport thing as well. Because you, when you're when you're trying to make money, um, you try and sell the same story three times. So at that time, as well as driving that car, I had driven the Datsun Bluebird, the original Bluebird cheetah car. I'll tell you about that in a second. <laughs> I had driven the DR30 and the HR31 Skylines, and I drove Dick's cars. Um, the first time I drove one of Dick's cars was actually at Lakeside. And I still remember Dick said, I said, where's the line around the back of the circuit? And Dick said, don't bother with that, mate. Just drive in the middle of the road. <laughs> I said, why? And he said, there's so much Camry around there. If you get off, you'll crash and you're not crashing my fucking car. And I said, okay, that's fine. And I drove around and I was absolutely in awe of this thing at how much horsepower it had and how it lit up down a straight line. Also, I was sitting in Dick Johnson's driving seat. Dick Johnson is of the Sterling Moss Brigade, drives with his arms very straight. He's also a very, very strong man. Mm. I'm a wimp and I've got short arms, so I had struggled <laughs> to drive the car, um, but it was amazing. And I still remember it was on on these Dunlop tyres and I'd never had tyres go off, you know. Or, or you hear about this thing, oh, the tyres went off. Well, let me tell you, in that era on that car, it was like driving on a dry road and then driving in a thunderstorm. That's how bad it was. Second time I drove the car was an RS500. I drove it at, at Winton. 
Um, and it was like driving a rally car. It just wanted to crank sideways all the time. It had, it just felt like it had drum brakes because it just didn't stop because the tyres were so little. And it had tiny little tyres and it used to pitch and jump and hop around. And then when you open the taps up and counted to three because that's about how long the turbo lag was, it just went like you couldn't believe. Now, go back to the Bluebird. So the Bluebird was a cheater car, had adjustable turbo boost in it. Whereabouts was it? Well, we could never work out where the boost knob was, but we knew it had an adjustable boost knob. Anyway, many years later, Howard Marsden, who was the Tatson team boss, came back, was running Ford Motorsport. I said, Howard, you're a lovely man, but you cheated. And he went, why do you say that, Paul? <laughs> and I said, that Bluebird, it was illegal. Oh, really, was it? And I said, yes, it was. I said, it had an adjustable boost knob. And Howard said, and where do you think that was? And I said, well, you know... The statute of limitations off. I think it was inside the ashtray because in those days they had, still had the standard dashboard yeah, in the car, yeah. right? And he said, oh, very good guess, Paul, but not quite right. It was the ashtray. So you'd pull the ashtray out, more boost, push the ashtray in, less boost. Simple. One of many, many dozens of cheating operations. Do you reckon there's a book in cheating in motorsport? Absolutely. Could in you fact, name it? Be, it'd have to go through the lawyer's... A fair bit well, not if, the, not if some of the people are dead. That's true. Um, That's and true. there are some people who are dead, and there are many cheats. You know, I I think the book should be called How to Cheat at Motor Racing and Win. And I know a gentleman who wrote a book about playing golf that way. One of the best cheats in golf is really simple. So your mate's about to chip up onto the green. You go and hold the flag, but don't stand where the hole is. <laughs> so he chips towards. <laughs> It's that simple. You would do that to me too, I Absolutely. Yeah, of course yeah. I would. But at but least you would you know, admit it. You oh, would yeah, admit yeah, it. yeah. I'd be laughing my head off straight <laughs> afterwards. But, yeah, there, there are – I mean, motor racing and cheating just goes hand in hand, doesn't it? You know, like Brad and Kim Jones, they're not called the Dodgy Brothers because they don't. They don't these days because you can't. But back in the days when you could – every production car. Yeah, production car, and, racing, you know, sports sedans, you name it. Every Everybody's had a cheat or a fiddle at some point. I – I can remember personally, I had a production class Toyota Corolla and I found a set of wet weather tyres for the car that were almost bald and they were worth two seconds a lap around Amaru Park. When you had to run on treaded tyres, is that the... Yeah, yeah well, yeah. you had to run on, a, on, on treaded tyres and but these were wet compound tyres but because they were so worn, nobody realised that they were actually wets, not the normal sort of tyres and they were worth two seconds a lap. So I used to run them once for a qualifying lap when I was running in production cars. so But that's all the cheating I did because I drove a car I had bought from Toyota and they told me, you can do whatever you like, but don't get don't cheat. Were you about to say don't get caught? Yeah, I was. Yeah, you were, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but, I'm, but I'm, try, I'm, I'm pretty well behaved that way. Tell me your take on uh, – we, we have covered quite a few of the big names. Uh, yeah. Larry Perkins, Peter Barak, uh, you know, in the modern era, Dave Reynolds. What's your take on the, the current crop? I'm just interested in your viewpoint on, on the likes of Wink Up and McLaughlin. We've talked about Van Gisbergen. Give me your, your, your JW take, your Scott McLaughlin take, yeah, and okay. probably also your, um, your Craigland's take as yeah, well. Yeah, okay. So JW, as far as I'm concerned, is the goat, greatest of all time. And it's not because of the numbers or anything else. He is, he is like Roger Federer in, in tennis. doesn't matter whether he's winning or losing, whether he's battling back or defending a lead there is no discernible difference in the way he behaves and the way the car looks. You never see him overdrive the car to try and get an advantage. You never see him underdrive the car. He is the consummate professional. And he's the be- from that point of view, he's the best I've seen in the whole time I've been reporting this thing. And I That's go back call. to the 70s. Yeah, yeah, because I think 
at, at maximising what he's able to get out of the car and knowing what to do and how to do it, he is unbelievably professional. On his day, Scaife was amazing. You know, Scaife always argues me about whether he had talent or no talent because everybody said he was a no talent who just learned it, you know, who had the best equipment. He was amazing at executing the game plan, always had a game plan. Now, who's the most talented bloke I've ever seen? Comes down to uh, sort of a Glenn Seaton, you know, like watching a, a, a skier, the natural skier who can just go down the slope and make it look effortless. Lowndes is the same. Lowndes back in the day when he first came into, into touring car racing was amazing. He's the sort of guy who could jump into a car and drive anything, but... I've also seen Brock at his best, and Brock was the same way. Um, the year that he won in 87 at Bathurst in the rain, I was there that day, and the way he drove around, okay, he was going slow, relatively speaking, and all of that, and he was hot-dogging and showing off for the crowd, you know, with his arm up on the elbow. And all. That's an interesting story. Brock used to brace himself in the car by pushing his elbow up against the door and holding the steering wheel, whereas most drivers use their left foot. Brad Jones told me that because they're driving around on the road once and he kept poking Brock to find out where it, where he hit him, where he lost balance, and it was actually his arm up. So even though he looked like he had his elbow up on the door, he was actually bracing himself. Anyway, but but Brock in the day had an amazing talent. Just, you know, the guy won the Repco Round Australia trial because he drove so bloody brilliantly. Mm. Rode, I rode with him lots of times on the road in racetracks. I went around Phillip Island once with him in the Sierra sitting on a piece of foam with no seatbelt. Not. Let's, let's not. The statute of limitations well, probably is okay now. Well, I'm still here, you know, but I mean, that's the sort of thing. But he was just an amazing driver. You talk about who is, you know, for a time, uh, Ambrose was the best guy in the whole, you know, in the whole game. And yet there's a guy who managed to go to Bathurst and forget to wear his bloody balaclava mm. after I told his co-driver that the rules said he had to wear a balaclava. And they said, no, the team told us we didn't have to, but they did. And they got caught. I think um, they got dubbed in somewhere along the line too. Yeah, I think they did. But I think you'll also find if you look at the footage of that, that Russell Ingle gets out of the car and his PR man puts his arm around his shoulder cuts because he wasn't wearing one either. And I know because I was standing there. And the hilarious part of all that was in the, I think it was a week or two afterwards, there was a an auction or a raffle for a charity or the like to win Russell's balaclava from Bathurst. Yes, never worn in anger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although dropped in a bucket of water to make it look like it was very sweaty. It didn't smell at all bad. So you know what I mean? Like I've seen all sorts of things and on on the day there are guys who can lift and there are amazing drives and amazing days and all of that sort of stuff. But my old mate Possum Bourne, God bless him, gone way too soon. We used to play a game that he started – usually with a bottle of champagne two-thirds of the way down, called Race for Your Life. And the basic deal was he used to play it in rallying, but it's two identical two drivers, name any two drivers, you and me. Um, same piece of road, same car, same day, can't fiddle with anything. Go. Who's going to be the guy that has the fastest stage time? Now, if you apply the same thing to motor racing, there are two elements that come into it. On sheer skill, who's the fastest? But then if you let them fiddle with the car, who would then be the fastest? So... I would not say that Mark Scaife was the fastest guy, but if you let him have the car and a good mechanic for half an hour, he he'll would be become – yeah, he's the guy that just absolutely laser focus and amazing. But would he beat Brock at his height? Absolutely not. Um, Grice was a great driver in his day, you know. Um, people forget that because he drove around in the shadow of the great god Brock. Now, has Grice ever recovered from that? No. He's still bitter and twisted to this day about the whole Brock thing, whereas Brock just was like, yeah. 
I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, he was the superstar. Tell me about the time you raced a V8 supercar. We haven't covered. We've got to. It took us a little while to get to the Sandown 500 privateer winning Simico Commodore that you and Bruce Williams drove in 1997. So that's Brock's last, first last. Sandown yes. 500. Yes, first last. <laughs> you finished top privateers. It was yep. your first go in a, a V8 supercar with yep. Bruce Williams. It was a car owned by. Robert Smith of, yep. of Ballarat. Yeah. How did that whole scenario come to be? Because you'd been to Bathurst and you'd done plenty yeah, of racing, yeah, yeah. but you'd yeah. never driven in the 1,000. No. So the way that came about, Brucey and I used to work together. Um, he was on Auto Action. I was on a thing called Car Australia. Under the Sime magazine. Yeah, Sime magazines, yep. part of the age group. So ultimately, John Fairfax, big publishing house. Um, he was the loudmouth ad rep. And I was the bloke who was the, the car journo. I wasn't the motor racing journo at that point. Um, anyway, I got a car to drive in the Winton 300 from Toyota, which was a Toyota MR2. Uh, I knew Bruce could drive. I knew he would do a fantastic job. I asked him to co-drive for me. Bruce will tell you now that he was quicker than me. But, of course, he was always going to be quicker because that was his job. But also he drove the second half of the race. So my job was to give him the car brand new and then he cut loose. And we had a great day. Out of the blue, he said to me, one day, do you want to come and race at San Anabathus? And I said, oh, yeah, of course I would. What's the deal? And he said, well, I've got a car. I've got a plan. I reckon you'll be all right as a driver. Um, if you can get a bit of sponsorship, you can, that's fine. So I rang up a guy called Pim, Tim Pemberton who was at Holden. He paid for the window sticker. The Melbourne uh, Melbourne Motor Show gave us that's some right, money. Uh, Shell gave us some money. So I got myself, you know, I did what I could to help. Uh, and I got us free Dunlop tyres. Um, drove the car for the first time on the media thing at Sandown. I still remember I had to take my then deputy editor, a guy called Joshua Dowling, who's now a famous motoring journalist, and because you weren't allowed to go out unless you had a passenger, and I hadn't driven the car before at all. So I whacked him in the passenger seat and did three laps, and I came back, and he looked at me, and he went, I didn't realise you can actually do this, <laughs> which was actually quite a moment for me. Um, and then Bruce did all the heavy lifting. I was simply required to drive, you know, drive around, not hit anything. Managed to spin at turn two after a brake pad change because the brake bias mm-hmm. changes, uh, and basically the front because it, it was rained, horrible rain yeah, that it was day, a terrible unbelievable. Day, it was. Yeah, it was yeah. a terrible, terrible day. Anyway, so I spun, but we carried on. The best story of that, and one of my greatest ever Brock stories. I'm going up this back straight at Sandown, and it's a tan, it's a it's a wet, dry track with the two tram lines. And I went as I went over the crest of the hill. I looked in the mirror, and there was an HRT car behind me. So I moved slightly to the right to get out of the way of the HRT car. So now I've got two wheels in the dry bit and two in the wet bit. And I've got a half a turn of opposite lock on over the top of the hill there in a gear higher than third and less than fifth. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be ugly. At which point there's this huge kabang and Brock's hit me in the left front mudguard with the HRT car and straightened my car up and we went down the hill together. Broom, 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 went round the corner and away we went. After the race, Brock came up to me and said, oh, mate, I'm really sorry I ran into you. I said, no, I think you saved me. He said, oh, yes, you're about to have a giant crash. (laughs) So, you know, these little serendipitous things, you know. And then many years later, I went to Bathurst. Another time Brock was finishing, I think, in the the black – the black uh, Commodore, the Auto Art Team Brock Motorola yep. car, and and at the end of uh, end of Saturday, he was doing some hot laps, and uh, we went out on slicks, and it started to drizzle, and he went straight off the road at the chase uh, across the grass and the whole box and dice, and he went. Of course, it had to 
Brock didn't swear very often, but he did drop the F-bomb that day and said, had to fucking happen with you on board, didn't it? <laughs> so that was one day when I didn't write something like that, you know. And I've got – I mean, I could stand here and tell you Brock's stories all day about visiting him at home and what he was like, you know, when he was off duty mm. and who the real Peter Brock was. Do you reckon he ever knew? I know he didn't. Mm. I asked him not mm. long before he died, asked him who, who the real Peter Brock was. I think he was just starting to find out, which is a bit sad at the mm. time that he died because – you know, you talked before about um, the number of PR people in the business and how people are groomed and what they say and all that. Peter was perfect in the sense that, and I, that sounded horrible because I hate that cliche, mm. but Peter was able to be whoever you wanted him to be. So most of the time he was just a mirror. So if you came up and you wanted Peter Rock God, you got Peter Rock God. If you wanted Peter Lovely Bloke giving you advice, that's who you got. But um, a lot of the time towards the later years, I would actually make an appointment to talk to Peter. I'd go up and say, hey, Brocky. And he'd go, g'day, mate. And I'd say, oh, I need to have a chat with Peter about something else. And he'd, I'd say, what time? And he'd say, oh, I'll come back at 3.30. And I would go back at 3.30 and Peter would be there. Mm. Not Brocky, not the rock god, not, not any other. No, none of that, just a, a, a naughty boy, <laughs> and, which he often was. It takes one to know one. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, we talked before about some of the modern era guys and and you wrote a book oh, a few years ago now, I think it was called V8 Legends, which yep. I contributed a couple of stats along the way to help out trying to paint the picture and you told some great stories about some of the drivers and that's where you – you, you told your race for your life as part yep. of that and who you, yep. you would pick at the time. Who did you pick at the time? Uh, I think I picked I think I picked Scaife. Um, would you change that now some? Okay, to Wink up. 10 yes, years, I would. 10 years on? Yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah, I would. I'd put Wink up ahead of him. Um, the hard thing about the race for the life thing is that you need to be – you need to have enough distance to actually make a, you know, you can't be emotionally attached. Mm. Oh, Brad Jones, a great mate of mine, but I'd never had him race in my life because you never know what's going to distract Bradley. <laughs> but the thing about it is you have to try and pick them at their height um, and then you have to think, okay, what made them so good and how would that compare to somebody else? So if you look at J-Dub, um, he's just his metronomic consistency and even when he goes through good times and bad times, he'll pull out a result. You think, wow, where did that come from? Whereas if you look at at Mark, on his best day, he was awesome. And he was able to do things that even Jimmy Richards couldn't do and, you know, all of that stuff, raced overseas, blah, blah, blah. But at the end, of, but as he started to come down, he found it much harder to recover and get back up again. Whereas if you argue, Jamie is in the same position that, Cray, that, that, that that Mark was in when things started to go down, but he's still able to lift. Um, now, a lot of that to do with Mark is the baggage that he had running the team mm. and families. You know, he had a family and a life. And J-Dub doesn't, J-Dub doesn't have any kids, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So he's able to do that. But he has a, an unbelievable laser-type focus on getting the job done. Having said that, I'm still an Alan Moffat fan. That's where I started. Mm. Alan Moffat was my hero. Uh I got to know him very, very well, and I'm one of the – well, I'm probably the only person who gets to call him Arthur. And why do you call him Arthur? Well, it's really simple. Back in the day, we once went to Alan's house at, at, during a Sandown meeting, and he wasn't racing, and he got rat-ass pissed. <laughs> and he wouldn't mind me saying that. And there were a group of us there, including my mate, idiot mate Webster from a Daily Telegraph. At 3 o'clock in the morning at Alan's house, he's looking around, opening cupboards and things. Alan said – what do you think you're doing? He said, I'm looking for Alan Moffat. He said, I'm Alan Moffat. And he said, no, you're not. You're his evil twin brother, Arthur. And the nickname stuck. So if you were somewhere and 
Arthur was there, it meant the good bloke was there and it was a good time to have a chat and he was a good fella and a nice bloke and all that. Anybody who ever saw Alan when he raced, do you think Scaife was intense? He had nothing, nothing on Moffat. Turned up once at a press conference and one of the journalists wore a team shirt from Peter Brock's team. And, uh, <laughs> and Alan just idea. looked at him and just said, I'm going to burn that fucking T-shirt. And he said, can I take it off first? <laughs> and Alan said, no. <laughs> that's, that's what – so that was Alan, right? And yet Arthur, lovely, gentlemanly, calm, reasoned bloke. But if you saw him at Bathurst, 90% of the time it was Alan. And the other good thing is Greg Hansford, who won that race famously with Larry, he was in on the gag. So he'd be sitting out the front. He'd walk past. He said, don't come in today. Alan's in there. No, no, no. Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that um, V8 Sleuth has become, it was built on tracking the race car histories. And as a very young journalist back in the day when I started doing all this, out of interest, it was just something I was interested in. I remember you gave me a hard time and you said, no one's going to care about those old cars. Why are you bothering doing all this stuff? You could still say the same thing. But tell me off the basis of all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. If you – I mean, we're sitting in your house recording this podcast. Yep. You've got three spots in your garage. Yep. What three famous cars from racing history, the sorts of cars that Moffat's we cover? Moffat's Mustang. You don't even have to go okay, any further. Okay, there's one. Moffat's Mustang. I would have uh, uh, a sprint car, a George Tatnell Winfield. Winfield, yeah. Winfield sprint car. As, because gorgeous George was just an amazing bloke, but also if Paul Morris has a thing near his driving school called the Sugar Bowl, mm. which is just a dirt track across the road, and nothing would be more fun than just ripping up with that thing. And the third car would be a rally car of some description. I don't have a lot of uh, attachment to touring cars, generally speaking. There are some – I one moving to tears only a few weeks ago. I'll tell you that in a sec. But in generally speaking, those sort of race cars that don't have the visceral connection don't do it for me. You know, they're just a tool mm. and, and, you know, they're all the same. They're like a footy player's boots. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, but, but some of the cars are quite famous. Now, the car that made me cry was the Brock Bathurst winner and I was at the Goodwood race meeting. And uh, the mechanic who'd worked and on the we're car talking back the eighty-seven winning car that was the a Goodwood this year, yeah, with correct. Hubble, the, yeah, the, the number tear. Then I was just wandering through the, the the garages at Goodwood, and I saw the car there. And the guy who'd worked on the car back in the day, Steph Zelenik, started it up. That's cool. And I started to cry. And the reason I cried was two reasons: because I'm a wimp. No, I'm not <laughs> a wimp. You, you'll know I'm anything but a wimp. The reason I was crying is because that noise took me straight back that day. The way the sound that it made, the way it cranked, and then the way it fired. But the other thing was, I was standing there looking at the car and thinking, unbelievable that the car's alive and Peter's dead. Mm. And it makes me emotional now just thinking about. And that's the interesting thing. Alan Moffat's not well these days, and that's really sad. And and yet the Moss, the Mustang will be around after Alan's gone. Mm. You know, there are Frank Gardner cars that are around mm. after he's gone. And so these cars, those are the sort of cars where you actually have an emotional connection to who the person is. For me, it's who the bloke was and what he was driving at the time. Mm. So it, 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 it's a connection. You know, Howard Mars and I have a connection to cars that Howard drove. I guess my mate Possum, you know, like I, I, I loved some of the Subarus he drove. Neil Bates is another great mate of mine, and he had some great rally cars as well. But if I was having the three cars, they'd be the ones I have. But there are, you know... You've you've been here in my house. I have model cars. I collect cars that I love. I love Can Am cars 
from back in the day, you know, the Bruce McLaren era. I've got lots of sports sedan ones, including the that horrible Brock A30 Holden, which I remember <laughs> seeing, you know, when it was – and then I've got some recent, you know, touring cars. I've, Brad Jones very kindly lets me occasionally have a squirt around with these cars. Roland Danes let me drive triple eight cars over the years. So I'm very blessed to be able to do that, and I guess I'm fast enough – that I'm not an embarrassment and I'm slow enough that I don't crash. That's important. That's a good mix. That's yeah, a good mix. Yeah, usually. We, we talked earlier on about um, the ultimate speed comparison at the Grand Prix. Yeah. Tell the story. What were you driving and who were you driving against? Well, that was another one of those weird things. So it was weird when Bruce rang me up and asked me to go and drive at San Ana Bathurst. And I should point out that at Bathurst, I didn't actually race on the no. day because the steering broke, but I qualified. And Larry Perkins, my old mate, gave me the finger. <laughs> As he went past, <laughs> coming out of the dipper, I moved out of the way. He came up to me later and he said, anybody think of your first fucking lap at Bathurst? And I said, well, actually, Larry, it was. He went, ah, oh, ah, oh, sorry then. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was a bit of good fun. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, so out of the blue, BMW PR bloke rings me up. Would you like to drive at the Grand Prix? And I said, oh, yeah, that sounds like a bit of fun. What am I doing? And he said, you're in the ultimate speed comparison. And I went, oh, because that's a Formula One car and a supercar, and me in a road car. And I did it two years, um, and I still remember the first time I went. So the first year I did it, it was me, a guy called Christian Clean, driving a previous year's BMW V10 Formula One car, and Murph. Now, Murph and I have a checkered history. We get along pretty well, but there's been a bit of to and fro over the years. Why? So I walk, Why? Why? Oh, well, because I wrote stuff he didn't like. You know, he thought he was legendary and sometimes I said he wasn't and sometimes I thought he was legendary and whatever. But anyway, you know, it's the jokey relationship mm. thing. But I walked into the driver's briefing and there is a driver's briefing just for the three of us mm. with Tim Schenken, who's the boss. And he looks at me like, what are you doing here? I said, I'm driving the BMW. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, I still remember Clean, who was this – you know, rock hard Formula One bloke. He just said, who'd been Weber's teammate at yeah. Jaguar and was yeah. a Red Bull back driver. He was and- fairly handy back in the day. Anyway, mm. he said he just looked at two of us. He said, "You people just stay out of the way and let me do what I need to do," um, which he did. So I was in the slowest car, so I get to go off first. And the brief was really simple: go as fast as you possibly can, make it look like the car's activated, that you're not just driving to the shops, so that the punters think you're having a mm. go, which is make fair the enough. tire squeal. Yeah, use some curves. and I've done all that because I've raced production cars a fair bit. That wasn't a problem. But then keep out of the way. So when you come onto the pit straight, I would go all the way to the left on the white line, and then the supercar would come past me, and then the Formula One car. And the idea was all three cars hit the finish line at the same time. Great idea, and I won in two years, I think, won two of these sprints. But I will never forget the first time. As we came down the start-finish straight, I couldn't see the Formula One car because he was behind the Commodore, and he went past me hard up against the pit wall because he didn't know who the hell we were. It was like a hand grenade had gone off. Mm. So the noise when you're that close to them, and the fact is as he went past, all the dirt and dust from that week had yet, you know, the car, the track was still fully dirty. So there's this huge explosion of noise and dust and crap and sound. And I, you know, you got the windows up and it's still the loudest thing you've ever had go past you. And I'd nearly put myself, <laughs> but I got used to it over the weekend. My other favorite memory of that weekend is I came down the straight and bear in mind, this is a BMW uh, M car. So it's fast. It's doing about 240 down the pit straight. And I remember on one occasion, as I put my foot on the brake, to pull the thing up for turn one, clean went past and changed it up again. <laughs> like, so I'm, oh, and I hear, bah, bah, 
<laughs> and from that weekend, I have one photograph of the two cars in the same frame, which him going around the corner with me in the background in the road car, which I tre- treasure to this day. You, you did another year. Was it clean driving the F1 car then? Or was it- yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. he still drove, but the second year um, they had a number of drivers, including Jack Perkins, who sandbagged like crazy so he could win on Sunday morning. He'd been told by the Holden people to go slow, so they were just the handicapping and he would win the big race on Sunday in front of the biggest crowd. But I also raced there in one of Brad Jones's Audi. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. And I also drove a Aussie racing car, a Toyota Orion looking one. Mm. Um, the the A4 I drove. So that year they entered the third car for me. Kim Jones rang me up and asked me if I wanted to do it, if I could get some sponsorship from the paper, which I could. He said to me, I don't care what you do, you can rip the corners off it, but do, do not over rev the engine because the engine in those cars were ridiculously expensive. And if you went 500 RPM over the rev limit, they had to pull the cylinder head off and then it compounded mm. from there. I still remember on the first day I was six seconds slower than Brad Jones which is embarrassingly awful, I have to admit. See, it's about look, a second, okay? Yeah, no, it was shit. Trying to be good it was to abs- you. No, don't be good to me. I'm sorry. Anyway, you know, like so, PR people, I forgot. Yeah, no, okay. no, no. Well, I, you know, I'm a hard mark. If you're going to you hard are. mark you other people, you have to hard mark That's yourself, true. right? That's true. So Brad came up to me and, and said, how slow are you? And I went, that. And he went, oh, shit. And I said, how much of that's the tyres and how much of that's me? And he said, well, about two seconds of that is the Dunlop tyre that you're on compared to the Michelin tyre that we're on. He said, come with me. So we jump in the car. He drives me around. Are you on the curb there? Oh, no, I'm not. In a roadie. Yeah, in a yeah. roadie at the end of the day. Are you on the curb there? No, get on the curb there. Are you on the grass there? No, get on the grass there. And he drove me around the next day. I went 4.1 seconds faster. <laughs> but also because I was stupidly embarrassed by the whole box and dice. Um, but it was amazing to actually go out with a, you know, as a teammate with a bloke who was actually trying to help you. Up to the point, you know, Brad would help anybody except Greg Murphy because <laughs> they were teammates <laughs> and he always said he does what I tell him and Murph hated it, which was fun. He but, had a bit of the, the, the use going on there, not like him doing what he was told. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe uh, that's why he sort of get on a little bit. Well, yeah, pretty much, you know, like so. Anyway, so I um, I didn't bang up the car. I had a great time. And, and part of that, again, is that when you ask to drive something or somebody asks you to drive something, they go, what do you drive like? Ring Brad. And and another time I was at Bathurst, they had a, a Bathurst uh, Super Touring Test Day, and uh, and Kim Jones was letting me drive one of their Audis up there. Um, I still remember going across the top of the mountain. Um, Jones and Paul Morris, half a car length apart, bumping and boring over the top of the over over towards McPhillamy, and uh, and I was crawling along because the gearbox had taken a tooth off. And it was grinding the whole way around. And I came back to the pits and I drove in and, and said to Kim, I think you need to park this. I think there's something wrong with it. And they jacked it up and he went, thank you, you just saved me a gearbox. So again, it's a harsh mark, but but be fair, you know. Um, and your job is to report, but it's to report fair and it's to report hard, you know. If somebody makes a mistake, they made a mistake. That's my job. Mm. Sorry, have to tell the people that you made a mistake. Mm. If you didn't make a mistake or there's a reason, then tell me what it is. Who's been the best person over the years that you might have written something that they stuffed up, they lost Scaife. the race? Scaife. Who could say, you're right? Scaife. Yeah. And I still remember he spun in uh, in qualifying at Eastern Creek one year in the HRT car. And I think it was when they had the fiddle brakes that nobody knew about. Remember, they had a system in the in the car where you could drag one of the brakes at the rear mm. with little paddles that were hidden behind the steering wheel, and they actually had a little – that's when they had the sprint car-style netting, so you couldn't see what was going Anyway, he spun, 
um, he walked into the garage and I remember following him out to the tent out the back and Wally Weissel, again, the PR manager, standing in front of me going, no, you can't go in there. I said, mate, I'm doing my job. I went in and Scaife said to me, I'm a gong beater. I'm a complete fucking gong beater. How did I do that? I'm such an idiot. And I wrote it all down and it all appeared in the paper the next day. Mm. And he came up to me and said, not a good job, PJ. And I said, hey. He said, yeah, you're right. I said it. Mm. Um, and I had a similar situation with um, with uh, David Coulthard once. We're in a car coming back from Mercedes-Benz press release. And I said, oh, David, you know, you're getting on a bit. When are you going to retire? And he said, oh, that's a strange question. That's like saying, I've just had the best sex of my life and now I'm going to stop. I'm never going to have sex ever again. And he starts going on about, you know, how wonderful women are and how lovemaking is fantastic for men and women and da. And I'm writing it all down. And as we get out of the car, he says to me, well, the good thing about that is none of it's going to be in the paper tomorrow. Yeah, and it was, <laughs> you know, and, and that's the thing. See, again, that was a glimpse into who the bloke was, but also what his motivation was and how Formula One, driving one of those cars makes you feel, mm. you know, like I said to you before, driving a sprint car is the best fun I've had with my pants on. They are unbelievably satisfying to drive and just this huge adrenaline rush. So, you know, I'm blessed to do what I do, but I also like to see that passion in people. And and the good race car drivers, when you get right down to it, you know, when they've had a battle, when Scotty McLaughlin's had a battle with Shane Van Gisbergen, if you get them at the right second and they're off duty, you can see it in their eyes. They still love it. That's still what they do. And if you go back in time, you know, it was people on horses mm. pointing sticks at each other trying to knock the other bloke off and it was <laughs> fighter planes and everything else. And it is. That's what motorsport's about. It's combative. What's in the modern media landscape? What's the future? Where are we going with media and budgets getting cut? Editorial teams get made smaller, no matter where. Yep. Uh, some would say print is print is dead in some certain areas, but it has its place. What's your take on what it does for the automotive and motorsport landscape? Yeah. But also too for those who are doing the writing. Well, like people who are going to write, you know, people say to me, is your son Eli going to be a journalist? And I said, no, because I don't think there will be journalists. But they actually, the more I think about it, the more I think there's going to be a snap back at some point. At the moment, social media is big. And that means your opinion's as valuable as my opinion, and so is the person listening to this, even though they've been to two motor races in their whole life and never spoken to any of these people, and I've done it for 40 years and I know them all personally. So at some point in all forms of journalism, there will come a, a, a turn back towards quality because mm. people will actually want to know. And having Donald Trump stand up and go, fake news – or a, race, a couple of race car drivers have joked with me, oh, that's fake news. But the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, people want things explained to them and they want to know why. And that's a role that journalism has fulfilled since the days when they were hammering on tablets or papyrus or whatever, recording the facts. But also, um, these days, you can get the facts. You, know, you can go to Natsoft, which is the computer program, and look at all of the stats for the numbers and all that sort of stuff, but it still won't tell you why the guy was slow or fast or whatever unless somebody's been and asked him. You know, Will Brown's driving Hyundai i30. Why were you so slow? I had tyre graining. You don't get that unless you go and ask the question. So I think there is still a place. Um, what's the what? How is that going to look in the future? Obviously, it's going to be digital um, because people want it immediately. Uh, and even with the um, even with the stuff, I read a lot of Formula One stuff with a guy called Mark Hughes, who I think is the the, the best Formula One writer. But I get it digitally. Um, because I want to read it immediately. I still buy the magazines and things because I'm old school and I like having magazines. But I think there will always be a place for coverage 
and reporting and insight. And if you look at the TV land, um, look at what's happening, you know, with supercars coverage, you know, they're still covering it. People watch. They want to know. They're involved. Um, you look at stuff that Lee Diffie, our old mate Lee Diffie, is doing in IndyCar racing in the USA. He's doing a fantastic job. Look at the number of people Formula One are throwing at the coverage we now get on Foxtel. How many world champions did they have there the other day? Three or four. They had Hill. Hill, Button. Uh, and uh, and what's his name? Nico. Oh, Rosberg. Yeah, yeah, Rosberg as well. So they had three world champions. They don't come cheap, mm. but they're doing that because to give a point of difference and to educate people, they are going and finding experts. You know, Karoom, who's now the pit lane guy, is doing a fantastic job. Um, I'm not a fan of some of the other people, the blah, blah people that they have around the place. But And I'm also not a fan of ex-players, ex-drivers, ex-whatever getting a job on the commentary team just because they used to do it. doesn't mean that they have an insightful brain. I mean, Scaife is a very, very analytical bloke and he can explain stuff. So, yeah, he gets a, he gets a tick in the box. Larko is very good. But most of, the, most of the other people who are on commentary around the world are not great. And there's a reason why most of them don't have print columns because they're not very good. But when you see them on a TV picture, they know who that person is and he can be saying nothing. Mm. You know, like State of Origins has got a whole lot of ex-players there going, yeah, it's great, mate, yeah, on you, you had a great game, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and where was the insight? Oh, there wasn't any. Mm, not there. Not no. there. Yeah, I get it. I get it. What's um, what's your world these days? I mean, you've worked at Papers on Staff. Yeah. The days of staff journalists at big metropolitan newspapers who just write about motor racing are gone. Yeah, no, that's uh, never going to happen again. What is your makeup of your, your workload? Uh, who are your masters? How does it all work in the modern world compared to, say, 20 years ago? Yeah, um, I still write um, general motoring, and I do that for car sales, and I do that for a thing called an executive traveller, which is a, a website, and I do lots of radio. Uh, I do sport radio, and I do um, I do uh, Fairfax radio, you know, uh, talkback People ring up and ask questions and that sort of stuff, which I actually, of, of all the things I do at the moment, that's the thing that gives me the biggest buzz because I'm always worried that they're going to ask a question I don't know the answer. And I can tell you in doing it for over 20 years, twice I've been completely stumped. What were the questions? I can't remember. <laughs> I honestly, I, and I'm not saying that to protect myself, I honestly can't, but I remember that twice it happened, mm. which is really good because I made a mistake. But so I think that the, the future of journalism is that there will always be you know, journalism in some form because people want to know, they want to be informed and however, whatever the delivery system is, and bear in mind that I started off in this when it was a pen and paper and a typewriter and often a telephone, you know, that whole thing, hold the front page. Mm. Well, it wasn't quite like that, but you used to pick up a phone and ring the office and dictate the story to somebody, uh, usually an older woman smoking a cigarette. Hello, Dale, how are you? And she calling would, in from Oren Park. Yeah, exactly, Oren Park. And, and I'd go, you know, Ian Gagan, that's G-E-O. Oh, yeah, I know how to spell I, I, I that. I remember even when I, as a young bloke, first turned up in supercar, Media yep. centers in the late nineties, so we're ninety-seven ish. Yeah, I still recall guys like yourself getting on the phone and starting to read the, your story in essence, so they could get a start on it. Yeah, and that was and because, that was late nineties. Yeah, because it was the most reliable way. A mm. landline telephone still worked better than a mobile, and the computers in those days. 
I've got one downstairs. It runs on four AA Penlight batteries and it has a little cup that used to fit over the phone. Nine times out of ten, it didn't send properly. Mm. So if you were up against a tight deadline, you call the copy takers. But, you know, computers have changed massively. Um, I'm still not at the stage where I can do it on a mobile phone because I can type very fast. Back, If you remember back in the story I worked to be a lawyer for a while, well, I had to learn how to type. Mm. And I can type about 150 words a minute. So when I interview somebody, if I'm not doing a podcast, I invariably type. So you can get the stuff through. Um, how's it going to be in the future? Uh, I mean, I've talked to people who talk about holograms. You know, we'll all be going around with a hologram that comes out of your phone. You'll actually read it in 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 the air. Mm. Um, and that's coming in cars, holographic stuff. We've already got head-up displays in cars, which I think are one of the best things there's ever been because – you can keep an eye on your speedo without having to look down all mm. the time. So you come back again. We've talked mostly about motor racing, but I'm really, really current on the technology in cars. So a lot of what I do is just um, people ring me up because I'm old and I'm still going. People will ring me up and ask me to write a story about something. I've just been asked to write a story about Rick Kelly, um, which I find interesting because he was a superstar when he was young and he sort of faded off a bit. Journalism generally I don't think will ever die. They say it's the second oldest profession after prostitution. And one of my favourite lines about journalism, and I used to have it framed in my office, it said, journalism is like prostitution. At first you do it because you love it, then you do it for a few friends, and finally you just do it for money. And that's true for a lot of people, but for me, at the end of the day, I still do it because I love it and I love telling stories and that's what it's about. It doesn't matter how it's delivered. I just love telling the story. And we've loved you telling some to us. Paul, thank you for having us at your place. Thank you for spending some time with us on the V8 Sleuth podcast and I'm sure we've just scraped the surface. There's plenty more for another time soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for asking. Well, there you have it. Thanks again to Paul Gover for joining the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Doric. He's one of Australia's top motoring and motorsport journos. Not short of an opinion or a story, we might have to get him back for a future episode. He's such a good storyteller. He's got plenty more stories up his sleeve too. Don't forget to, for a huge selection of motorsport books, magazines, posters and collector prints, head to our online store, store.v8sleuth.com.au or head to our V8 Sleuth homepage, click on the store link and that'll take you in there as well. If you're enjoying the V8 Sleuth podcast, that's good news. Make sure you leave us a review to help spread the word. And don't forget to subscribe because then you don't miss an episode. Keep an eye on our website, our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages to stay up to date as well. But until then, we'll catch you next time on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Doric. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.